gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now the stud is here. Please welcome the Tennessee stud Ron Fuller and your host Jeff Maldron. Welcome everybody to another edition of Ron Fuller's Studcast. I am Jeff Maldron and it is a pleasure to be with you once again as the Tennessee stud takes us down that road of wrestling history and now the man of the hour the tennessee stud himself ron fuller ron how you doing today oh i'm doing great uh jeff i guess more the question is of how you're doing my man uh, you're a pretty tough cookie uh i mean uh just so fans out there that listen and uh, last week uh david summer stepped in for you and and we really didn't talk much about your situation but but uh jeff's really uh Going through something really, really difficult, uh, folks, and uh, and he's a strong dude. I mean, he's doing this program today from hospital. Uh, I think he's uh, just about to finish up his first round of chemotherapy. He, he has lymphoma. Lymphoma. And, uh, yes, and uh, you know, I'm just uh, I'm just uh, kind of blown away, man, by by your strength, man, and uh, and how how tough you are. You you, you should have been a wrestler, man. <laughs> well, I appreciate those kind words, Ron, but I'll tell you what, how about for this week, you stick with lightning and you can give me a Tennessee walking horse this week. How about that? <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Cool. cool. All right. Well, Ron, where are we going to go this week for the folks? Well, we're off to West Virginia. Uh, we're leaving the state of Tennessee and uh, going about 200 from Knoxville, about 225 miles north into West Virginia. We're going to Bluefield, West Virginia. It's going to be Southeastern's first time to run events in West Virginia. Uh, I'm going to describe that card, obviously. It's uh, on the March the 22nd in Bluefield, and uh, it's 1976, uh, 44 years basically away from today's broadcast just about. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the card on Friday, March the 26th in Knoxville. We're going to cover the results of Bluefield. We're going to kind of talk about how I set Bluefield up and what a promoter and an owner has to do to get something like this off the ground, just to give fans an idea that there's more to it than just the matches. Uh, we're going to also talk about, as I said, Knoxville on Friday night, March 26th. We'll talk about the house, the, the results of the card, the payoffs. And it's going to be with the first Friday night in Knoxville uh, in actually 1976. And this, uh, it's going to be uh, all Friday nights from then on until January 1977. We'll talk about the TV show, which is a really tremendous one. This one is an unusually good television program, uh, and it features a TV championship match that's going to turn into much more than that. It's actually going to set the tone for Southeastern's future, this television show. Uh, today's learning tree is another great question. And the question is, uh, 
you know, they, they, uh, I know the NWA champion was on the road constantly. Gentleman asked, how often did you book him? For how many nights in a row? Your reason why? And how did that compare to other territories? So I'm um, looking forward to that one. That should be a good one. And I, I think I'm just going to jump right into it, Jeff. It's okay, my man. Let's just start off. Like I said, we're going to travel up three interstates to get to Bluefield, West Virginia, about 225 miles north of Knoxville. And let's start with, uh, you know, what I know about the history of Bluefield, West Virginia. Uh, and I don't know all of it. I mean, wrestling, concerning wrestling, obviously. I know back as far as the 1950s, because of when I was about three or four years old, my grandfather, Roy, sent my dad, who was a young promoter and just starting to wrestle, to take care of Johnson City and Kingsport, Tennessee, Bristol, called the Tri-Cities up there in the northeastern part of Tennessee, and also to run other towns, some into Kentucky, uh, up into Virginia, the state of Virginia. And so my dad went there, uh, probably it was about 1952, and stayed there until about 54. And he actually expanded wrestling on into Bluefield during this time frame. So, uh, so between the 50s and 1976, Jim Crockett, owner of, of uh, Mid-Atlantic Wrestling over in Charlotte, he was running in West Virginia some as well. It was kind of an area in which uh, no one really ran there regularly, so it was kind of any man's territory if you wanted to. If you wanted to go in there and try to make it and uh, run regularly, it was a potential to do that. So, And I really needed another weekly town. I was running Knoxville on Fridays or Sundays. I was running Johnson City every Tuesday, and I needed that third weekly town. Uh, Bluefield happened to be one of the largest cities that was close to me. And there was no regular wrestling there. So it was a good place for me to start. Uh, you know, it, but it was going to, by, by the distance of 225 miles, which is nothing compared to a lot of territories, it was going to be by far the longest trip for my territory. And it might, you know, my problem with it was it might change the dynamics of my short trip territory. I was getting some great talent because I had those short trips. Uh, and I knew the crew wasn't going to like that long ride. And it was, uh, but it was the only way to get their pay up. You know, it was a larger town than, than probably anything between Knoxville and there. And uh, it, we got it going. We were going to be able to, to put more money in everybody's pocket at the end of the week. And I know that was going to make them happy. So in early 1976, in January, I made my first trip to take my first look at Bluefield, West Virginia. Uh, you know, as a promoter, you want to kind of see the towns that you're going to operate in. You can't do it with big cities. You know, you, you can't see all of that. But uh, with a city this size, I spent a whole day in Bluefield the first time I went. And I just kind of went downtown. I just gauged the activity there. Got a feeling for how big the city was. And, uh, you know, I kind of like what I saw. It's a pretty part of the country. It's up in the mountains. Uh, you had to drive through a long tunnel, through a mountain, basically, to get to Bluefield uh, on the last freeway that I traveled on. So it was a nice area. So uh, after seeing the town, I'd taken a tape with me just in case they had a television station there. And, you know, I might want to try to talk to them. And surely enough, they did have a TV station in Bluefield. So I saw the station coming in. I did my little due diligence and took a real good look at the community and the town. And then I stopped by the TV station and 
basically without an appointment, they saw me. They took me into their conference room uh, and I was able to put the tape on the back in their studio and then they in the control room. And then they piped it into the conference room where we were. And uh, I watched it with probably, I think it was the general manager of the station, the sales manager, maybe the program director. There's three people with me. Anyway, they were blown away by the program. They had never seen anything like it. They they got to see the instant replays in the split screen, and they got to see a, a bunch of pretty decent talent, and they wanted it. They said, we, we like this. You know, we want it. So I went ahead and made a deal with them right there. And the deal I did with them is the same deal I had with the Knoxville station and the other TV stations I'm going to get on the rest of my career, basically. And that was an eight-minute for me for commercial time that I could use for interviews. And the station was going to get eight minutes. There were 16 minutes in every hour program that was actually set aside for commercials. So I gave them half of that. They gave me the other eight minutes to publicize my events. It worked out great for me. I even set a date with them, you know, when do you when do you want to put it on the air? They said the first Saturday in February. So I left Bluefield having had a real good day. So, uh, and then, you know, that area had other support. Uh, we were on the WJHL out of Johnson City at this point, and it was w- part of one of the first cable systems in the United States. Uh, because West Virginia was so mountainous, it was difficult for people with television antennas, which most people got their TV back in those days from the antennas. Uh, they couldn't, uh, being in the mountains, they either were at the bottom in the valley or they were up on top and they got too much wind to use an antenna. For whatever reason, there was a little small cable system that came off of Johnson City's television that ran in there as well, which was really good for me. Now I had a local station as well as one that was more than 100 miles away that they were getting off a of cable. So days later, I had to go back and do the second part of due diligence, let's call it. I had to go back and find myself a building. And I found that there were two buildings in that city. One of them was a big National Guard armory called Brush Fork. It held 3,500 people. The other was a smaller building, which was a park building. It was downtown in Bluefield itself. And I'd had some experience with how to find these buildings. Obviously, in 1972, when I was promoting locally in West Palm for the Florida office, I was going around and finding towns, little spot shows to run in. I had to find the buildings. I had to set everything up just about like this trip here, except I wasn't trying to find television stations. Uh, And I also had the same experience with Southeastern now because I had this high school program that was doing very well, and it required me to go and get these high school gyms. So I'd had a little experience, so I decided that Brush Fork uh, was the place I wanted to open up. And I went and sat down with those people. And uh, they, they, wanted, they wanted wrestling. They wanted events. I wanted to have a weekend because that would have been ideal for me, have Knoxville on Friday, have Bluefield on Saturday. Weekends were usually better for towns than weeknights. But uh, they didn't have that availability. I, I couldn't get enough of those Saturdays to be able to run regularly so that fans were accustomed to it like they were in a regular, normal, weekly wrestling town. So I had to take a Monday, which is not the best night, but it still gave us an opportunity to be in a fairly large city compared to where we were with the spot shows off the Knoxville TV. 
So on March 22nd, 1976, basically about 44 years from the release date of this particular stud cast, 44 years earlier, we drove up to uh, Bluefield, West Virginia. Let's take a look at the card that night. Okay, the first match on the card was Norvell Austin, and obviously managed by Homer Odell, and uh, he was against his former partner, Butch Malone. Uh, I worked with Tor Tanaka. A Southeastern Tag Championship match, Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golden. They wrestled against the superstars who were the new champions and had been since the Coliseum date of Sunday, March 14th. A Southeastern Championship match, Ron Wright was against the champion, Don Carson. A pretty darn good card. It had everybody that was on top and good workers were on that card. And we were all expecting a big crowd. You know, the boys and I, we were excited about it. The results of the matches last night, uh, let's just go through it. Uh, Malone won over Norvell Austin. Uh, I won over Tanaka by DQ because Homer interfered. Robert and Jimmy lost to the superstars. And Ron Wright won by DQ over Don Carson. Uh, The rest of the experience was not what any of us expected, especially me. The attendance was only about 1,200 in a building that held 3,500. It had snowed the day before. and when it snows in the south, people aren't accustomed to it. They don't clear the roads with salt, and uh, it makes it really hard to run after snow events in the south. And they hadn't cleared the roads well. A lot of fans couldn't get there, even if they'd wanted to. Uh, so I learned several valuable lessons that night, which was really critical for me as a young owner uh, and a guy trying to figure out how it all worked. My first lesson was to avoid booking cities in the mountains. especially in the winter because bad weather and especially snow in the south it just killed business i realized that you know we could have probably doubled that house maybe even more the first show but you know that snow really really hurt us also learned my television shows had not been in the market long enough they'd only seen seven tv shows before i ran this event in the brush fork army uh, there wasn't near enough exposure, obviously, for my talent to be seen by the fans so that they would want to buy a ticket. And this lesson is going to serve me very well uh, because my second wrestling company that I'm going to start in 1978 out of Pensacola, Southeastern Southern Division, I'm going to know that I have to run this TV a lot longer than seven weeks before I try to run actual events. So I'm not going to make that mistake when I get to Southeastern in 1978 down in Pensacola. But uh, I learned a lesson from this show in Bluefield. Uh, My crew was extremely disappointed. (laughs) They complained, first of all, about the distance. They hadn't been used to driving. They were spoiled, spoiled rotten, you know. They were disgusted about the icy conditions, made it very difficult to get there, and even worse to get out of there at night. And obviously, they were unhappy with the size of the crowd. So uh, I made a decision right then. I said, guys, we're not going back to Bluefield until summertime. And uh, I actually backed off from uh, March 22nd to July 12th before we would go back to Bluefield. And by the time we go back, things are going to dramatically change because that television will have established itself. So one more bad thing happened that night. And it might have been the most serious of all. And it really had nothing to do with the matches, oddly enough. And I I made my last flight with Ron Wright that night. And I flew on a foggy night uh, into an airport that sat on top of a mountain. And that means uh, Ron Wright and I flew into Bluefield, West Virginia. 
Wow. That's <laughs> horrible. It was a horrifying night. I mean, we could easily die that flight. And I'm going to tell that story next week because this show has got so much ahead of it. But uh, we're going to talk about my last flight with Ron Wright and his two-engine plane next week. Ron, I know everybody loves those Ron Wright stories. So where are we going to go to now? Well, we're going to go back to Knoxville. Uh, we're going to go back to uh, uh, our first show. The week of March 22nd was on Monday in Bluefield. And on Friday night, it's only the second show that we've had in 1976 in the month of March. And it's going to be on a Friday. And this is going to be the first Friday night show of 1976. But we're not going to run any more Sunday afternoons in all of 1976. We'll be back in the Coliseum, but we won't be running shows on Sunday anymore. So here was the card for Knoxville in the Chilhowee Park Indoor Arena. And the uh, first match was Les Thatcher against Jerry Mine. Now, they had wrestled in the Coliseum show 12 days earlier, and they had a 20-minute draw, time limit draw. And Jerry Myatt uh, grabbed a microphone, and he got himself booked on another card. what he did, basically, and he challenged Les to a 30-minute time limit match. He said, I could beat you if I had 10 minutes more. And uh, Les, obviously, took him up on the challenge. So that's going to be the first night on this card on uh, on the 26th of March. Uh, Ron Wright's going to wrestle against Tori Tanaka, who's managed by Homer Odell. Two former Tennessee tag champions, Norvell and Butch Malone, are going to wrestle for the first time in a one-on-one match with a special stipulation to this match. If Butch Malone could beat Norvell Austin in 15 minutes, uh, he would get five minutes alone with Homer Odell. So, uh, you know, that gave this match a little a real tone to it because uh, now there's a time. He don't he has just a certain amount of minutes to be able to get it done or he's not going to get this extra five with Homer Odell. So it made that match a really good match. In the double main event, uh, the Mid-American champion that night, Dick Steinborn's back, and he's going to be defending against Don Carson. Uh, in the second main event, Southeastern Tag Champions, the Superstars who had just won it on the Sunday, 12 days earlier in the Coliseum, they're giving Robert and Jimmy a return match. I wasn't on the car, but I'm going to play a big part in the results of that night. So let's talk about the transitional TV on Saturday, March 20th. That's the TV that was six days before this event. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's loaded. <laughs> this TV program, I mean, is really, really loaded. Uh, uh, it has a Mid-American champion on it, Dick Steinborn. It's got Tor Tanaka wrestling against two guys in a handicap match. It's got a very controversial personality profile that gets totally out of hand. It's got a tremendous tag match, and it's got a TV championship match with Ron Wright defending his television championship that's going to end up in a brawl. Uh, I mean, this program is going to rock by the time it's over. So the first match on this program is Mid-American champion Dick Steinborn, and he's wrestling against a pretty good wrestler, Phil Hickerson, a guy who's going to be one of the greats. And he's going to he's going to team up with Dennis Condry, and they're going to become stars on the western side of Tennessee in the near future. With his skills, I'm talking about Steinborn, who really had tremendous wrestling skills, and his humble interviews, he was quickly becoming a big babyface star in Knoxville. He'd only been there about three times. But fans were really getting into him. Finished Higgerson with a brand new hold that he had not used before, the sleeper hold. And, uh, you know, when he woke up Higgerson, the, the fans gave him a really big ovation. You know, 
Everybody liked the sleeper. It was a great finish. A lot of guys used it, but he was the only guy in Southeastern at that point that was using it. So he went to the set with Les, and they watched the end of the match that he had had with Charlie Cook in the Coliseum 12 days earlier. Uh, Dick stayed at the set after the commercial break, and he made a tremendous interview about why he was putting up his championship belt against Carson when Carson wasn't willing to risk his Southeastern title. You know, and as part of it being humble, you know, he, he said he had been all over the world and, and that he'd held almost every belt uh, at one time or another everywhere he'd ever been. And he wasn't really bragging about that and it not being true. He really had had a fabulous career. Uh, and he said he had his eyes on the that beautiful new Southeastern belt, which it was. It was brand new. And he felt like if he put up his belt first uh, and Carson couldn't beat him, then Carson would be obligated to give him a shot at his Southeastern belt. It was the words of a really confident champion is what it was, and it made sense. And that's what Dickie Steinbord did in a lot of his interviews. He made sense to the fans. The second match of the day was toward Tanaka. It was managed by Homer O'Dell. And like I said earlier, he's in a handicap match. He's wrestling against two opponents. And it was the same situation that he had had in the Coliseum earlier. He wrestled two guys, and he beat both of them, piled them on top of each other. And in this one, he did pretty much the same thing. He made pretty much quick work of Rick Connors and DeVoy Brunson in this this handicap match. And he karate chopped both of them in the forehead, and and he had that chop that could break break those concrete blocks. And he didn't have any trouble uh, rocking these boys' world. uh, And he piled them on top of each other, and he did the same thing he had done in the Coliseum, and he— he pinned them both at the same time. Homer finished that segment. He went back to the set after his Oriental killer had destroyed somebody else. And he watched uh, the video of how he did that. Tanaka had done that to Dennis Hall and Paul Diamond in the Coliseum. And uh, Homer finished that segment by saying he, he was thinking of making all of Tanaka's matches, handicap matches, against two opponents. He said, obviously, there's no one man here that can beat Tanaka, my Oriental champion. Les threw it to commercial break, and Novell Austin joined the other two at the set. And uh, they started talking about, when the camera came back on, about the following Friday night in Knoxville, that card. And Homer was his normal boasting self, man. He said he was scared for that. Hillbilly Ron Wright, who had to face Tanaka by himself the next Friday night. And then he and Novell turned their attention to that single match between him and Butch Malone, in which Homer could basically get involved. And Les brought that up, which was really a good point. You know, he asked Homer if he was concerned about the possibility that that Austin might lose and he was going to be in the ring with Malone. And Norvell jumped in and answered the question instead of giving Homer time to get to it. And uh, he bragged about he could be, he, he could have a 15-hour time limit and uh, and Malone wouldn't be able to beat him, much less beat him in 15 minutes. So Homer was a little more concerned than Norvell was, though. Homer kind of pooched out his old big lips, and he looked up at Norvell sternly, and he and he said, uh, in his old fashion, he says, I'm going to put my butt on the line here that he can't beat you. That boy's awful mad at me, which is really correct, because uh, Butch is still sporting that those stitches and the scars from all those stitches. and. And he he really had a score to settle. He wanted to get to Homer, obviously. 
So uh, when they left the set, Homer and <laughs> were still having a very concerned conversation with Norvell Austin on the way out. So we're now at the personality profile for this television. And uh, this one is just really, really different. Uh, you know, and uh, we didn't we didn't talk about what we we're going to do. I just told Carson and the superstars the day before that you guys are going to be on the profile. You're not wrestling on TV, but you're going to be on the profile. You know, and, and I expected they would come in with some kind of idea about how to get themselves over because they loved that limelight. Uh, but uh, this time they they went way too far. So the superstars and uh, and who are the at this point the Southeastern Tag Champions and the Southeastern Tag Champion Don Carson show up for the personality profile. Uh, we did this one live because I love those live reactions for personality profile. And people sitting in the main studio, Studio A, could see through the big opening between the two studios into the second studio, actually see them, as well as being able to watch them on the monitors. So after being welcomed by Les, Carson opened a bottle of Don Perignon, <laughs> which he called Don Perignon. <laughs> you know, and he poured the superstars glasses. They all three had glasses and they had a fourth glass and he poured the champagne in all three of the glasses. And then he says to Les, do you want a glass? And Les says, no, 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 thanks. You know, he goes, he goes you know, Don, this, this personality profile is not for this type of uh, action. You know, he said, are you all going to have a seat? And, and Don says, no, we're not going to have a seat. So they all had their belts and they just took their belts and they just threw them in Les's lap. He was sitting in his chair and he'd refused to have, obviously, a drink with him. So, uh, you know, studio audience was going crazy as soon as they saw who the three guys were that were going to be on the profile. And when they saw this celebration begin, they got even louder. The longer this profile went, the louder the TV crowd got. So the three of them, they refused to sit with Les, like I said. And, they, you know, they threw their belts in his lap and, uh, and they started toasting themselves, uh, you know, as, as Southeastern champions forever, they were saying, you know. and Les tried to get control, but they just ignored him. You know, they basically took over the personality profile. That was Les's baby. He didn't like that. He never wanted anybody to take control of his television program. So, uh, you know, he, he was, I, you could see it in his face. He was all red during this entire profile. His face was just solid red. So they started talking about what the three of them had accomplished since they had arrived in Southeastern. Uh, you know, Carson was now the, the, had been the Southeastern television champion, and uh, he was still the Southeastern heavyweight champion. And, uh, and you know, that uh, now the uh, the superstars are the are the tag team champions. And, and, and then, you know, they toasted again. And, they, you know, they toasted the fact that they had busted Hillbilly Ron Wright's eye and blacked his other eye. And they the more or less tried to gain control, the louder they got and more out of control they got. And the more out of control the studio audience got because they they were really upset by the fact that these guys taking this whole time frame, five minutes turned into 10 at least. So they toasted again, a future win for Don because he was getting another shot at a different championship the following Friday night. He was going to beat Dick Steinborn for the Mid-American Championship and then they would have another championship in their pile that was laying in Les's lap. And they were high-fiving each other, and there was a lot of backslapping, and the champagne just kept flowing. I mean, the studio was trying the best to drown them out, but 
And Les finally apologized to the fans at home. You know, he just and, and let them know that this was not what he had in mind when this personality profile was scheduled. You know, he was trying to end it, but they wouldn't stop. But they wouldn't even calm down. And, and Les had to finally cut them off. And he directed the cameras to go back into the studio for the third match of the day. And when they did, you could still hear those guys partying in Studio B in that second studio. So third match of the show was Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golan against Bill Dundee and Al Green. You know, Les is still upset about the out-of-control party and the personality profile. And he said on the air that he's going to talk to the Southeastern officials about what had just gone on in that profile. And he apologized again to the fans. So the match in the ring was great. It's the kind you always wanted to have on TV. I mean, there was a lot of wrestling in it. Solid action. A big win for the former champions, uh, Robert and Jimmy, at the end of it. Robert put the fuller leg lock on Al Green. And Jimmy dropped kick Bill Dundee out of the county. I mean, he went through the ropes. I thought he was never going to hit the floor. Uh, and, uh, you know, once they got that pin, all oh, the crowd just loved it. Uh, so then as soon as it was over, uh, Robert and Jimmy went back to the set with Les, and I joined them. Uh, we watched two videos from the last Coliseum show. First one showed me with Carson uh, and my match with against him for the Southeastern title. I had him in the fuller leg lock, and, uh, and I had one. I put that, that hold on somebody. And nobody ever got out of it except the way that Don gets out of it this particular time. You know, and uh, Carson just reached up and grabbed the referee. He knew he was going to give up. He knew he would, he didn't want to break get a broken leg. So he reached and grabbed the referee and pulled him down intentionally on the both of them. So the referee turned and rang the bell. Well, I kind of thought that uh, Carson had given up. And uh, when I got up, I'd raised my hand already. I was expecting I was the new champion. But then uh, the referee says, uh, no, no, no. He shook his head and said, no, I disqualified him. And obviously that meant I wasn't going to be the champion. I wasn't going to get the belt. Carson just rolled out of the ring. He was hurting. I'd had him in the hole long enough that his leg was hurting him. And he kind of collapsed on the floor out there. And the superstars came down quick to the ring to check on him. You know, was supposedly I thought they were down there to check on him. And I was standing in the ring watching him. I just wanted to see him carry him out. And instead, he, he sent him in the ring to get me. And, uh, you know, fighting two-on-one after having a long match with Carson was, was I wasn't going to win that one for sure. And it ended up robbing Jimmy, thank goodness, came out of the dressing room. And the building went crazy. Now they had all six of us in the ring. And, uh, you know, Carson was finally broke up from me, and they escorted him back to the dressing room. And I left the ring. But the fight between the superstars and Rob and Jimmy, it was just beginning. They less didn't show all of it, but they had uh, cut it to where they showed the end of the match. And so Les said, uh, you know, he showed a little bit of what was going on. The Rob and Jimmy had torn the mask half off the superstars. Both those guys were bleeding and they were kicking their butts. And uh, at this point, one of them flipped Jimmy out of the ring because Carson came down to the ring. He loaded his glove. And his partner knew, the superstar knew what he was there for, obviously. He shot Jimmy out on the floor. Carson nailed him with his peanut butter and uh, tossed him back into the ring. Then, uh, you know, when he got back in the ring, superstar covered him. The referee was on the other side with Robert and the other superstar. He never saw Carson, and he counted him out. 
So uh, I left the set when uh, Les threw it to commercials because I wasn't wrestling on the next card. Robert and Jimmy stayed there, and they had their say about the upcoming return match following Friday. They had that chance to get their tag championship belts back. Um, it was time for the TV championship match, fourth match of the program. Unless Les had mentioned it a couple of times during the show that we got a television championship match on last today. So Ron Wright is supposed to be between Ron Wright and Tony Peters. Ends up partially being that way. Phil Rainey announced Tony Peters, who was already in the ring. And then Ron Wright entered the studio. He had that big old television trophy with him. And he got to the ring. And all of a sudden, Carson and the superstars, they come flying out and they attack him. They just pound him down to the floor on the concrete. Then they pick him up and threw him back in the ring. When they did, Tony Peters is no fool. He's got a shot here to maybe take the TV title from a guy he's never going to beat, Ron Wright. Uh, so he just started stomping poor old Ron. And Phil Rainey went ahead and announced the match. Wasn't going to be able to stop it at this point. They rang the bell. The match was started. And it was pretty much pure pandemonium in the studio. Fans were really, really upset by uh, what Carson and the superstars were doing to Ron. So Les was upset, too. He was already mad about the profile. So he was screaming over the air uh, to get him back, get him into the dressing room. Then Carson, on his way out, couldn't help it, I guess. Uh, he saw that uh, big old TV trophy sitting by on the apron by where they had attacked Ron Wright. And he went over, grabbed that trophy, uh, walked over to in front of the cameras where he knew he was being watched. He raised that sucker up over his head and he smashed that beautiful trophy into thousands of pieces on the concrete floor. Uh, and the camera obviously got a great shot of it. Les, at that point, uh, left the set. First time he'd ever done that. He actually got off the set, and he went to try to grab Carson. About the same time, Butch Malone came from the, the other dressing room, Robert and Jimmy, and uh, they came too. And, uh, and then when I saw them go in, I went myself. And uh, the party that had started with the personality profile for Carson and the superstars ended pretty darn quick, I tell you that. Those boys left the studio as fast as they could. But Tony Peters is continuing in the ring, working over Ron. He's really got him going and has a couple of false finishes, almost beats him. Then old Ron finally gets one of those old patented comebacks started. And the, boy, the studio crowd was always into Ron Wright. And when that happened, I mean, that place was really rocking. And Ron put one of those good old Tennessee dog whippings on poor old Tony Peters and, uh, and Ron pinned him. So Ron Wright. Butch Malone, Robert, Jimmy, and I, five of us, all went to the set because everybody's still upset, especially the baby faces, because of what the hell has gone on in the program with Carson and the superstars attacking Ron Wright, tearing up his trophy, the whole deal. So uh, studio audience was as on fire as we were. I mean, they were just really lividly mad about it as well. So uh, Ron Wright, he, he began the interview, and he Talk first about the three hoodlums that had taken over Southeastern wrestling and that and and this television show today. I believe he added that to it. And he screamed that that they stole his titles, you know, uh, they busted his eyes and they destroyed his TV trophy. Everyone else on the set, Malone, Robert, Jimmy, all had their say too. And, uh, and I finished it up. I kind of finished it up for all of us. Uh, and I, I said something effective. We were no longer individual wrestlers. I mean, and, 
And um, we were going to be watching each other's backs from here on. Uh, and then I said, I'm, I'm not even booked next Friday night, but I'm going to be there, you know, and Carson and the superstars, you know, I said, been winning championships by helping each other. And, uh, and this group of wrestlers, you know, I basically looked around and they're all standing there behind me. This group of wrestlers right here now are going to band together and, uh, and we're going to see to it that those three bums are going to lose all their championships after what's happened here on the program today. So from here on, I said it's going to be a war between us and them, and let's see who's going to win. The crowd had been screaming throughout the entire interview, but they really exploded on the end, and we left the set. But it wasn't over. Les demanded at the end of the show that Carson and the superstars come out to the set quickly before the show was over. Now, the three of them are in the dressing room. They're still having their champagne, and they're still celebrating back there. And they knew that if they stalled long enough, that the program would run out of time and they wouldn't be seen on the end of the program. And uh, so the director, Bill Kincaid, he's up there. He's a sharp kid, you know, and he realizes what they're doing. And he just stops the tape from rolling. (laughs) So Carson and them, after several minutes, come out, Carson and the superstars, and they still got their champagne. They're still celebrating. And they're all three laughing at less. And. Carson looks at him and asks, he says, uh, time ran out on the show, didn't it, Les? <laughs> and Les smiled back and said, no, we stopped the tape. So, and we've been waiting for it. <laughs> so, oh, they screamed. Oh, my gosh. Now the, now the tables have turned. And, uh, and then Les continued. He said, uh, you know, we still have almost a minute left, Don. He says, uh, long enough for me to tell you about what the Southeastern officials have decided to do about what you guys have done on the show today. He told them that the the Southeastern officials were requiring them to replace the television trophy that they had broken, that they would not be allowed to wrestle live or be seen live on TV next week, and that they were each going to be fined $10,000. Well, boy, the crowd popped in, and uh, they started screaming and threatening less. And he just walked away as the show closed. And that was a great ending to a show. And uh, it really uh, it really was one of the best programs we'd ever had. And it's going to put us in a whole new uh, direction with Southeastern at this point by what's going to start happening next Friday night. Okay, this would be a good time to go to David Summers as he discusses Super Stud Cast number 27. The Tennessee Stud sitting down and talking with his old friend Jerry Briscoe about uh, Jerry's career and his legendary brother, former NWA World Heavyweight Champion, Jack Briscoe. So let's go to David Summers. Each of the 27 Super Studcast are three hours of unforgettable true wrestling history. The latest, number 27, maybe goes beyond that description. Part one with the legendary Jerry Briscoe live instantly became one of the world's favorites. Fans around the globe are astounded by the tremendous old school knowledge from listening to this one at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. If you want to learn how two great wrestling families changed the sport and contributed to its phenomenal success in the past, decades this is where you find it part two released tuesday march 31st will be the studs tribute to his mentor former nwa world champion the iconic jack briscoe he may be the greatest pure wrestler of all time at tmstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast only 2.99 this three-hour super studcast has it all ride into wrestling history with this one okay so ron where are we going now 
Well, we're going to go back to that Friday night, to that card that we've just talked about in that television show that promoted it uh, on Friday, March the 26th, and we'll give you the results. Thatcher uh, beat Jerry Mike. He didn't need the 30 minutes to do it either. Uh, Ron Wright beat Tor Tanaka uh, by disqualification because Homer got involved in the match. Norville Austin barely survived the 15-minute time limit with Butch Malone. In fact, Butch was about to beat him about 10 times, it seemed like, in the last five minutes of that match. But he barely survived, and then uh, obviously Butch didn't get his shot at Homer, and that was the end of the match at 15 minutes. Uh, and what we're going to do next time is bring it back and push it to 20 minutes and have the same type of match. So uh, I followed up on my promise to watch the guys back, even though I wasn't on the card. And I did go to the building, and Carson used his glove on Steinborn while the ref was down and went for the pin. And the referee was counting him out, and I slid into the ring and grabbed his arm on the count of three. And <laughs> so he looked over to the timekeeper, rang the bell, uh, he disqualified Steinborn because I interfered. And uh, Carson got his hand raised, but he didn't get Steinborn's belt. Uh, so he was pretty livid about the fact that I'd helped Steinborn and that uh, and I helped old Dickie back to the dressing room. Uh, so tag match, it looked like the superstars were going to win in exactly the same way they had won the titles in the Coliseum. Carson came down to the ringside again. Robert and Jimmy had their superstars rocking and rolling. And false finish after false finish. And uh, and then Superstar threw Jimmy out of the floor. And there was Carson again. He loaded his glove and he was about to nail Jimmy again with it. And uh, I kind of arrived and spun him around and knocked him on his ass. And the building blew up. And then we all end up in the ring. And the referee just stopped the match. But disqualified both teams. And there was no winner. Uh, but boy, the fans really liked the end of that match. And the way things ended up. Could have been another situation where they had maintained and kept their championship outright. Okay, so Ron, what was the attendance and payoff in Knoxville for that week? Well, that's the way we'll do Knoxville. We'll do kind of the whole week. Uh, you know, Chilhowee Park, it was full again. At 4,000, that's all we could get in that indoor building. But next week is April 2nd, and we are going to try to go outside from then on through the course of the summer when the weather's good, if it's not too cold or if it's not raining. So it was a gross house of about 12000 and a payroll of about $3,500. Uh, it averaged to be about $250 per man. And the week got off to a poor start. We already talked about it in Bluefield on a Monday. And that same snowstorm now, it affected not just Bluefield, but it affected the, all of the eastern side of Tennessee. And when that happened, business always dropped. There was no Coliseum show, as there had been the week before. And uh, so the entire week went down from around 15,000 fans for the week to about 12,000 for that week. The average pay for the week, still about $650, which was still, by today's money, more than $2,000 for the week. So boys couldn't really complain too much about it. Business wasn't quite as good as it had been, but it was still up there all right. Okay, Ron, you know what time it is. It's time to go to the learning trick tip this week. Because of my chemotherapy, instead of a nice glass of iced tea, I'm going to have some Gatorade. i got to get those electrolytes uh, back in line, Ron, so if you don't mind. And our question today is from an old friend of mine, Ian Totten. So uh, why don't you tell the folks what Ian's uh, asking you about this week? Okay, great. Uh, you know, and, uh, and yeah, I'd like to have some of that Gatorade with you, man, as a matter <laughs> of fact. <laughs> so today's learning tree, like you say, comes from a gentleman named Ian Totten. And, uh, he says, I know the NWA champion 
was on the road constantly. That's for sure, Ian. And uh, and how often did you book him, meaning me, for Southeastern, uh, for how many nights in a row, the reason why? And how did that compare to what other territories did? It's a great question because fans are, they will always want to hear about the NWA and how it all worked and, and especially with the champion. And so booking the NWA world champion, first of all, was always the responsibility of the owner of a territory. Uh, he made the decisions about when and for how long he wanted to use the champion and how often too, basically, you know, and, uh, and I'm sure there were probably some territories in which bookers had input in the decision, but uh, very few of them. You know, basically, this was a deal between Sam Muchnick, who was traditionally and almost always during the time that I was in the NWA, the president of the NWA. It was always the owners of the companies and Sam Muchnick that exclusively talked about the dates on the champion. Sam didn't deal with bookers. <laughs> He wasn't interested in talking to your booker. Uh, he wanted to talk to the man. And in my case, I was both the booker and the man. So, you know, I, I actually, I had to talk to Sam much to get my dates. So I'd like to begin to answer this question, maybe uh, because it's, it's a different type of question. Uh, let's start with the obvious difficulty that Sam Muchnick had as the president of the National Wrestling Alliance. You know, he's, he's dealing with American territories a great number of territories in the United States, as well as around the rest of the world. And there's only one champion. I mean, gosh, that's a, what a problem that would be, you know. Some territories are small. They only had one major city, like Southeastern, like we had Knoxville. You know, uh, as time goes by, when I go to, uh, to establish Southeastern in Pensacola and later on Continental in the 1980s, I'm going to have a lot of major cities. And, uh, you know, a lot of the large territories had had a lot of major cities. And, uh, you know, so you wanted to get more dates, obviously, because you had more cities that you wanted to get your world championship matches in. So Muchnick was up to Muchnick to decide where and when to book the champion. Uh, but he had also then to decide how many days to leave him off. I mean, this guy's working his butt off. He's doing these hour matches night after night. And, Wrestling, the greatest talent in the world, he's got to have some rest. And I think Sam did a tremendous job as the NWA president. I, I don't ever remember anyone, any of the owners, having a problem with the way Sam booked the champion. And you didn't want to get that reputation of questioning Sam's decision regarding the champion because you might find yourself not getting any dates. You know, I mean, Sam had a lot of power. And, uh, you know, and he didn't mind using it if he had to. So you had to communicate with Sam, and, and you had to talk to him about how much you wanted the champion and how many days he was willing to spend his time to discuss with you what the situation was with the champion. Uh, he compiled all the information, you know, and then he began what would have been a grueling task of laying out the NWA's champion schedule. Uh, I doubt anyone was happy with what they got always, you know, date-wise. Uh, you know, but uh, they trusted Sam and, and they didn't bitch. You know, it, it was what it was. And in my estimation, the booking of the NWA champion is probably one of the most difficult jobs in all of sports. I just can't imagine how difficult it was. I would have kind of liked it. It would have been a, a real challenge to be able to see how you can make people happy and just have one champion in all those territories that want him. So it's up to each owner, obviously. 
personally make the decision regarding how often they wanted to use the champion first. Okay, so some owners believed in using the champion as much as possible, and others maybe only once a year. I think owners based their use of the champion on their booker's skills, on the talent that they had in their territory, on the success they were having at the gate. That you didn't just say, hey, I just want him a whole bunch of times. If you're doing good, you might not want him as often, you know? So, and if their talent level wasn't good and the booker wasn't competent and, <laughs> and his angles weren't good and his programs didn't, didn't make sense, then they probably needed the champion more because the, those title matches were going to make the territory more successful at the gate. But, uh, you know, in my opinion, there was only two wrestlers in the world that you could expect to increase your gate every time they came to town. And one of those guys was Andre the Giant, and the other was the world, the NWA world champion. So to me, critical question was regarding NWA champions use in the territory was, was it too much or was it too little? You know, <laughs> if you booked him too much, he was going to lose his appeal. And ultimately, he's going to stop drawing you as big a houses. And if you booked him too little, why were you even a part of the NWA? If you're not going to use the NWA world champion, then uh, why do you want to join the NWA? So let's kind of break it down for a different angle, uh, starting with uh, those that booked him too much. So I guess some of these fans out here are thinking, you know, when uh, listening to this is, how the hell could that happen? How could you book the world champion too much? That's a good question, you know. But I'll give you an, an analogy, uh, you know. Uh, if you love ice cream and you don't get to eat it too often, the chances are you're going to always love that ice cream. You're going to always want it. And if you love it and you get to eat it every day, chances are likely that it's not as good to you. And you might not even like it at all after a while. So it's kind of like that with the world champion. You know, if fans rarely got to see the champion, they never missed that opportunity. They went and filled those buildings up. And if the fans, uh, you know, if they saw him regularly, uh, it, it meant to them uh, each time that the crowds popped. Every time he was there, if they saw him all the time, it was less important to him. It meant less. And uh, the crowds would drop off a little bit when you used him too much. So it was a tricky decision to make. Every owner probably had a different answer for it, too. So uh, let's start with the last question. How did other territories book the NWA World Champion? Well, let's talk about the territories that use a champion often. And uh, and I'll give you my estimation of how I thought it affected them. Uh, I'm not going to name them, you know, and I'm not going to name any particular territory. But key question is here, you know, if the champion came often, who wrestled against him every time? Because usually when the champion came, you put your top guy in there with him, you know. And uh, the match, even though those world title matches were always great, they were always a somewhat of a disappointment to the fans because their champion, their local champion, the guy they came to see win the title, never won. <laughs> you know, so that top guy, that the favorite of the fans, he wasn't quite as strong after he lost to the champion as he was before. So booking your top guy against a champion two or three times a year and his losing, it probably uh, didn't didn't make these top guys uh, more popular. Uh, you know, and then their crowds started to go down even when they weren't wrestling the world champion. So you didn't want to take steam off of your good guys. So how do you play this game when you got the champion? 
Who do you give those shots to? So uh, when this happened, these crowds started dropping a little bit. Then those territories were costing themselves money by booking the champion too often, in my opinion. If you had a huge territory and booked a champion in different cities against different opponents, you could still have great success. But if you had a little territory and you were going to use the champion a lot and you didn't want to switch guys around, either way, booking the champion, oddly enough, it had risk as well as reward. I mean, you could go bad in the wrong direction or you could have big houses. It was very difficult to make the decisions of how you wanted to do it. So I'm sure everybody is asking themselves, uh, how could an NWA World Championship match be a risk to business? You know, how the hell could that be a risk? Well, the reason is something I've mentioned many times before. It's critical in building wrestling companies, especially new ones like my Southeastern was at this point, in momentum. That was the key word. When you got a world title night, the, you take all the emphasis off this talent that you're trying to build with angles and programs every week to put it on a world champion. And uh, your talent's there every week, and, uh, and they're going to be returning the next week. But the champion's only there one night. And take an example. In 1975, Southeastern's first full year, I only got two world title matches the entire year. By March of 1976, I was only going to get one world championship night the entire year in 1976. I wasn't upset by that. In fact, I liked it because what I did is, is I had discovered by looking back at the two title matches that I had in 1975 that my houses dropped off dramatically for a few weeks after these world title matches. I'd lost momentum by having a world champion. I had a big night, but those six or eight nights following it, I lost more money than I made on those big nights. So I looked at it like, well, this doesn't make sense. So I had kind of learned a valuable lesson from my father. And he tried to teach me as a kid growing up, especially when I first started thinking about owning my own company. He used to have these huge mega events in his companies back in the 50s and, and early 60s where they drew 30, 40,000 fans in, in a night. And then business would drop huge, hugely afterwards. So uh, he asked me about the after these two title matches in 75. Uh, he didn't ask me, how much did you draw? He said, uh, how much did your show drop the next week? And I was like, well, wait a minute, Dad. You know, I had a real big night. And he goes, how much did you drop the next week? You know, and, uh, and then, uh, you know, he forced me to look at it. Did your company lose momentum? Were you drawing more before you came than you drew after he left? I mean, these were great questions, and they really hit home with me. So what did you do? What do you do then, you know, uh, to follow these huge nights? Uh, that was the critical question for me. So here I was. I had the NWA World Champions coming to Southeastern. He's going to defend in October 1975. It's going to be Terry Funk. It was only March. And and I wasn't going to make the same mistakes I'd made in 75 by not being prepared to follow the world title cards with something just as good or maybe even better than the world title night. That was the real difficult part of it. So I started figuring an angle between myself and Terry Funk for the world title in October, seven months before the match happened. I used the NWA championship match as a springboard to pop my territory, not just to knock it back and kill the momentum, but to springboard it, to use it as a springboard 
and to catapult my business to new levels after that world championship. The angle that I'm going to do in the summer is going to start in the summer. It's going to precede this match. is going to it's going to last for months. Uh, the world title night when it finally comes in October of '76 with Terry Funk. Obviously, we break all-time tennis records, and we have the biggest gross gate in the history of Southeastern at this point. It's going to be bigger still, but it's still the biggest yet. But the finish the, to set Southeastern. But the real deal that worked out of this is the finish of this world championship match between me and Terry Funk catapulted my new heel, Ronnie Garvin. It set him on fire. So from that point on, I I realized that I needed to use world title matches, not only to break records, but to lead to something even bigger after those world championship matches. Maybe the best example of getting it done was in southeastern Pensacola. In late 1982, Ric Flair was defending against me in Mobile, Alabama. I was a babyface at that time. And uh, this title match had a very strong special stipulation added to it. The top babyface, I was a babyface, but maybe the top babyface was Bob Armstrong. And he and I had wrestled in the finals of a tournament to see who got to wrestle Flair. A babyface finals. And I won. And Bob turned on me. He was the special referee for this match against Flair. And he turned on me that night. Another situation, record crowd, record everything. No one expected it. And uh, Bob turned on me. He became the heel for the first time in his illustrious career. We drew an all-time record in attendance for the entire year after we had this match. Uh, in 1983, and it was all based upon what happened that night with the world championship. So, uh, Mr. Totten, uh, I hope I've answered your learning tree question. As my companies grew larger, the number of days the champion stayed each week grew also. But the number of times a year that he came there never got above two or three times a year. When we had him in other towns, I tried to book him with other guys. But we never let the world champion kill our momentum. Uh, some territories booked him more often, some less. But uh, hopefully, I've explained why I chose to do otherwise. Okay, Ron, let's start to wrap things up here. If you'd like to become friends with the Tennessee Stud on his Facebook page, and you automatically become friends with a legend, Twitter, at Ron Fuller Welch. This month's Super Studcast number 27 is all about the legendary Briscoe Brothers at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Ron, would you like to make a comment about this one? Oh, yeah, I certainly would. I mean, the response to this studcast, this super studcast, has just been phenomenal. I mean, fans worldwide are really loving the conversation that that Jerry and I had just about uh, old school wrestling. And uh, and I'm planning on uh, doing the the last part as a tribute to a guy that for me is was a mentor and an, and he was an icon and as a professional wrestler and as a NWA world champion. I want to do it on Jack Briscoe. And I really look forward to that one very, very much. I just, and I appreciate fans, all these comments that you have sent to me about this last super stud cast. And uh, thank you very much for supporting me. Okay, Ron, where are we going next week, my man? Well, I've got another great Ron Wright story for you. I mentioned earlier about the first night in West Virginia and, and a horrific plane ride that, to get there, man. I mean, uh, 
And we're entering April of 1976 on the next one. And uh, we're going to see the return of the popular Mike Stallings, uh, who was a young kid who had three months earlier been out for three months due to an injury in a match with one of the superstars. Also, the Japanese great Mitsuhara Arakawa is going to come to Southeastern starting next week. And uh, next week's learning tree question is about enhancement talent. Usually young guys that start out at the bottom and work their way up. Where do they come from and who trains them and why do some guys reach stardom and others never make it at all? I mean, great question. And and Jeff, before we finish today, I, I want to wish you uh, the best in your recovery, obviously. I mean, I, I just admire you, man, for how you're handling it. And, and I'd like to do something a little different for the close today. I'd like to fast forward from where we've been talking about today in this particular studcast uh, to March of 2020. And I have some thoughts about what's going on today around the world in uh, in these crazy coronavirus times. I mean, uh, I, I never thought in 1976, uh, you know, back in the day of when this this particular studcast has taken place, that any of us would ever see something like this happen on Earth. You know, uh, we we're all kind of confronted head on with something only basically spoken of in the Bible. You know. This is not something that we ever expected, uh, and and, and uh, you know it's foretold there, and uh, you know, and and uh, I don't want to go into that subject at this point, but we're focused during this time to separate ourselves from others and and to change our lifestyles completely. When I began these studcasts about three years ago now, it was I had, had one purpose in mind. Uh, I wanted to get my family's name and my family's history out there in the public. It had never been. You know, no, none of us Welches had ever talked about what we had done or, or what we learned in professional wrestling. And that's why I started doing studcast. But uh, in these times of separation from others with millions looking for entertainment in their own homes and, 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 and their lives, uh, these super studcast and the studcast, they have more significance now than ever. Uh, you know, and I realize it uh, by by what fans are saying out there. So fans around the world, they're now only in, not only enjoying what I do, but they're they're thanking me for it every day. They 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 send me these comments that are just amazing. So uh, God bless me with an unbelievable life. There's no doubt about it. And now I think he's given me a second reason for doing these shows. So thanks for everyone. Who's found something more than entertainment in my studcast and my super studcast? Uh, uh, we're all going to survive this virus, and uh, we're going to come out stronger for the struggle. We're going to all be champions. That's what it amounts to. And uh, and thanks as always for listening, and may God bless us all. Okay, well, so for the Tennessee Sun, Ron Fuller, I am Jeff Bowden, our producer, Sweet Lou Kippelman. We'd like to remind all of you that the studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard podcast network and until next week ron's gonna have lightning all settled up and i'll be on that walking horse i can promise you that ron so until next week we'll see you folks thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast the true story continues next week so full nelson your friends and point them in our direction for another ride with the tennessee stud This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.